Hey everyone, thanks for coming back. Uh, the name's Alfie Faber. I'm a filmmaker, sound designer, and lover of art in sunny Sydney, Australia. And on this podcast, I chat to people in film who bring sight and sound together. And this episode's guest was a really fascinating chat on that subject. Glendon Ivan is an Australian director. In 2003, his very first short film, Cracker Bag, won the short film Palm d'Or. Uh, I never know if I'm pronouncing that right. But hey, I'll put a link to the Vimeo of that in the show notes so you can watch it. It's only 15 minutes, but it's really amazing. Um, he went on to make a phenomenal feature film featuring Hugo Weaving that was called Last Ride. Uh, since then, he's directed on a massive number of really great Aussie TV shows and miniseries, such as Puberty Blues, Safe Harbor, and the BBC co-production The Cry. His second feature, Penguin Bloom, just premiered at this year's online Toronto International Film Festival, and I haven't seen it yet, which is a massive gaping void in my life, and I will be eternally depressed until I have managed to watch it somehow when it comes to Australia. Um, anyway, he is one of my favorite Australian directors. I've been trying to get him on the podcast for like over a year since I first met him at a Q&A. And I'm so excited to finally catch him while he's quarantined in Sydney. Uh, by the way, uh, I realize that in these Skype interviews I've been doing during lockdown, I'm always screaming because I'm wearing headphones. So yeah, sorry about that. I'm going to start having one ear off, but you'll be hearing a lot of shouting in this one. Um, as usual, I'm on Facebook at Sound Perspective. Follow me on Instagram at Alfie Faber. And on Twitter, I'm at Sound Perspect. Uh, flick me an email if you like. It's contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Glendon. Thank you so much for making the time to join me. Pleasure. So you are currently locked up in a hotel room in Sydney. Is that right? Yeah, I'm um, on day 10 of oh, 14 of a, of a yeah, compulsory hotel quarantine because I... I travelled from Victoria to New South Wales, and this is this is what I had to go through. So, yeah, <laughs> wow. it's um, I've been in this yeah, been in a room for you know nearly ten days straight. Good um, grief! To go. Yeah. Wow. Are you going a bit mental? Um, I felt like I hit a wall yesterday, day nine, yeah. and definitely the night before. I couldn't sleep, and I was. I, I I felt like the room had been changed or something. Like it just <laughs> looked different to what it had. Um. And I, and I would have been painted a different color or something. Like I was just going, like, I really need to get out of here. But I've broken through that. Um, and now That's I'm, good. yeah, can, I, 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 the end is in sight. Yeah. I've just got a weekend and a couple of days to go. Well, I've been really enjoying the um, photography you've been doing in there uh, that I've been seeing on Instagram. Um, what, what else have you been up to in there? Um, well, I'm up here. I mean, I came up from Melbourne because I was, doing i was in pre-production for a commercial i was making in melbourne mm. and when stage four happened in melbourne that commercial got shut down mm. and i was able to move the production to sydney mm. so since i've been here um i've been in pre-production for the commercial mm. so there's been bits and pieces to do with that mm. all the time um but i did a lot of research 
in what coming into quarantine entailed, like yeah. you know what it actually was. Mm. And I read this really interesting, I guess it was an article or someone's experience of what it was like. And they said something that really clicked. This, you know, they said, bring in a bunch of things to do. Like yeah. you've got two weeks in a room by yourself, like what are you going to do? Mm. And they said, you know, if you've always, if you've ever wanted to learn a language or if there's a book you've wanted to read or, mm. you know, whatever, whatever these things are, um, bring them, bring a list in. Yeah. And if you get them done in the two weeks, that's great. But if you don't get them done, just let them go. Like you're never, ah. you're never going to do that. And it's, so it's this nice way of sort yeah. of going, the most important thing in your life. And these 14 days get you to sort of consider all those things. So I came wow. in with a list of projects mm. of things that are half finished or wanted to start and um i've been gently slowly ticking them off and you know just just wow. just doing you know keeping myself busy i guess yeah. yeah yeah do you want to share what some of those things that you're passionate about are or is that a bit personal it sounds a no, bit no, no. no i mean there's everything from you know i've written a few letters to people who i haven't seen for 20 years like, wow Wow. And there's this great Neil Young song that I, I heard when I was probably like 16 or 17 called yeah. One of These Days. Uh, I think it's called that. Um, anyway, it's all about him writing letters. One of these days I'm going to write a long letter to all the good people I know or good friends I know. Yeah. And I've always thought one day in my life I'm going to do that. So I've, I've been doing that slowly. I've had some photo book projects that I have have half started mm. and I've made progress on them and I've started another two. Mm. Um, I don't know, maybe that's enough. I don't know. <laughs> Listening to a lot of music, like things that I've really wanted to listen to properly, I've been doing yeah. that. I came, you know, I, I brought a, a nice set of monitors in. To, yeah, yeah. And uh, I kind of came in prepared to, to listen to music and I've been doing that all the time. Yeah. Uninterrupted unless I want to. Like that's That's been amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Kind of a bit like a forced holiday. I needed a break. <laughs> this, is, this has sort of become my... Yeah. A weird holiday. I'm not yeah. with my family away from friends and stuff, but it, it, it is an opportunity to, to chill out, really. Yeah. Like to spend some time by yourself. Well, you only fairly recently finished with Penguin Bloom, aren't you? Or was that a while ago? No, I probably only finished that now, like seven or eight weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. I imagine you'd still be pretty burnt out from that. Yeah. The mm. end of that was pretty exhaustive, as it always is towards the end of the film. But I was on that you know, con like every day for like a year and a half at least, probably more. Mm. Um, and definitely finishing the film, um, you know, the last three or four months of it were, were in lockdown. Mm. So having to navigate that um, physically as well as, I don't know, you know, keep the, keep the momentum up and keep the, keep the energy up on a project like that was um, pretty exhaustive, but we got there. Yeah. yeah. So, Glendon, could you talk a bit as to how you got into directing and your career so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I've been a director, I guess like a full-time director, um, mm. for nearly 20 years now. I started mm. originally as a graphic designer, um, worked as a designer, studied design and worked as a designer for a few years before I ended up in my late 20s going to uh, film school mm. uh, in Melbourne. Mm. I went to the VCA film school and... At that time, I was really focused on and deeply in love with documentary film and still am, but that's mm. that's all I was interested in was documentary film. And I, I, I did that year of documentary, which 
really was changed my life and really focused me on what I wanted to be as a as a director, or, or, or I could see the potential or the opportunities there were as a as a director. Mm. Um, and then, you know, without making it a, a huge story, like from there, I ended up, I guess, because I was a graphic designer, and I realised I wasn't going to be able to make a living out of the kind of documentary films I wanted <laughs> to make. Um, I, I ended up, uh, you know, starting to do commercials. Right. Um, and, and, and I guess I guess I just saw it as, you know, design was a – graphic design to me was commercial art and commercials were kind of like commercial filmmaking. Mm. But I, I, I joined Exit Films um, then and I really feel like that was my film school after that. Like I yeah. felt like VCA was amazing for – lots of reasons as far as opening my mind to what cinema could be and the kind of cinema that I wanted to make or that could be. Mm. Um, but exit having, you know, and, and, and being very hungry, uh, to, to make things, um, doing, you know, small ads and music videos and, you know, trying to, trying to make a living out of scraping a living together, making, um, making things as a director. Mm. I really felt like that's where I learned to make, to, to be, you know, learn the craft, I guess, or, you know, yeah. started started learning the craft of what filmmaking can be. Because I think in, in that, what I realised was that even though I loved documentary and loved loved certain kinds of films, what I really loved was making films. And I loved getting a camera and I loved setting it up and I liked shooting something. I liked casting people. I liked mm. being in an edit suite with that footage it shot and trying to work out how to put something together. I liked being in grading suites. I liked being in sound suites. I liked the whole process. Yeah. And working commercially allowed me to do that really often. Like I, mm. I was doing it a lot. And so for the last 20 years, I've balanced that. I, I, I now do... I, I, I wouldn't say I split half half my time between long form and commercials, but um, when I'm not doing long form, I'm doing commercials, and they and they they help balance each other out. Mm. I feel like you've really well balanced. You've really brought that documentary background and also really in depth dramatic knowledge to your commercial filmmaking because. I love that short documentary you did. I can't even remember who it was for. I think Nike, oh, Nike or Coke. Yes, yeah. yeah, for yeah, like Coke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, it was in yeah. black and white in New York or something. It was in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, Philadelphia. That was from, I watched it a while ago, but I I just yeah. remember loving it and thinking like this is a really cool example of what commercial filmmaking can be when people bring their own sensibilities to it. Yeah, I think I mean that was that was a good example of when I came out of film school and what I what I still believe and what I'm mostly interested in uh, as a filmmaker is we were really encouraged because we were studying documentary like mm. we didn't really talk about drama at all really mm. but we we're really encouraged to 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 work out when does a documentary stop being a documentary and when does it become fiction or drama and. I felt like it was that grey area in between where something is wavering between or you're, or you're very, you know, the drama that you're making is is incredibly informed by, uh, you know, documentary-like research or real mm. events or real people or it's documentary like that was, that it was kind of, you know, that that guy existed, he did those things 
Mm. Uh, he was, you know, he, he tapped those pens. He, we found that guy, and yet we created this sort of world around him that mm. didn't exist. Like he never, we'd never have gone to those places, and he didn't do the stuff that we shot him doing a lot of it. Mm. Um, but it felt true. It felt like it. It, 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 it. It's not like he didn't do it, or he didn't want to do it. We didn't force him, but we just sort of, I guess, embellished and heightened the world around him um, to make something that was more cinematic and more, more poetic and more interesting. I guess. Yeah, that's really cool. I remember um, when I saw you do a talk at RMIT, you talked about loving Werner Herzog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was a big proponent of that, wasn't he? The kind of meshing of documentary and drama. <clears throat> yeah, he's always had that thing, which, you know, is sort of burnt in my mind, or, you know, because I love documentary and I love love the honesty of, of documentary. And he always had that line of, like, you know, truth, truth you know, Truth is for accountants. Like mm. it, you know, it's if you want to read the truth, then read a phone book because it's full of truth. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, his his kind of heightening of that truth um, is far more interesting. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like I've taken. You know, I can only ever aspire or dream to to make anything as great as anything Werner Herzog has made. <laughs> but I've I've always taken that. Um, that that ideal of that as long as you're being honest, mm. you can change the facts and you can you can shift you can shift the, the truth around a subject um, to the point where you know with with Penguin Bloom mm. when I first got involved in that because uh, it's based on a book about a real person yeah. um, this a woman who has uh, had a terrible accident in Thailand became a paraplegic as a result of that and um very depressed and at home uh you know months later stuck in a wheelchair at home one of her kids brings home a little bird mm. and a magpie that's also fallen and and hurt itself and the two of them have a fr friendship and the family's sort of brought together around this bird and, and in a way she kind of heals herself through mm. her generosity in you in know in, in helping this bird and it's a very simple story, and it's based on a true story. There's a book about it, yeah. and and it's not just a book. Like there's, a, it's a photographic book. It's this sort of coffee right. table book. Um, but our film is really, you know, in some ways, it's deeply rooted in the facts because mm. we shot it in their house. Like we, really? we the whole film is shot in the house. So it's right. like the walls in which this all happened is in the house that they live in now. Like we we moved them out wow. and shot it, and. But, you know, there's other things that are totally changed, like, you know, like story things that happen. But what I what I said to them right at the beginning of the process was, I'm going to try and get this right in my head, but like so when you get to the end of the film, you'll, you'd say none of this happened. None mm. of this happened. But hopefully you say that it is, is the truth. Mm. And I think that's that's how, they, how the Blooms feel about it. They know that things have been changed, but it's still a very honest portrayal about what happened. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, um, uh, you know, like what Herzog calls an, ex again, I, I aspire to this, but it's like an ecstatic truth. Like yeah. it's more than, it's an embellished truth. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I, I don't actually know much about Penguin Bloom, but um, I just looked at the IMDB and saw that some of the Blooms were credited as executive producers. So they were really involved in the story yeah. and kind of signing off that, um, that extension of the truth was appropriate and they were happy with it and stuff were they yeah 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 they generally mm. um 
I mean, I don't know. It must be really hard to have a film made about you. Yeah. <laughs> you can yeah. imagine. And it's not just, you know, we haven't made it about one one woman. Like, we had just haven't made it about Sam Bloom. It's also, it's Cam Bloom. It's the three children. It's mm. in their house. It's about a really terrible thing that happened in their life. You know, mm. it's so it is, you know, it's very invasive, I guess. Mm. Um, but it's also... Hopefully, hopefully in the way that we've been able to, you know, again, like I didn't want to make the, like you can't make a book. I didn't want to make a, a, a film version of the book. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to make our own version of this. It's, mm. you know, the book was based on the, on what happened and we made it on the book, which is we've made it another version. So it's another step along. But I know they're really happy with it. I know they, they feel like it's um, representative of, of, of their experience, particularly of Sam's experience. Um, that's great. Well, um, I think it's so interesting that you came from a very heavily documentary background and then the first ever fiction short film you made went on and won Palm d'Or. Like, yeah. not not bad for a first short film. But that film, Cracker Bag, was based... <clears throat> sorry. It was based on um, an experience from your youth, right? Yeah, like when I made that film, like again, I had I had no interest in making a drama. Like I mm. just actually thought drama was like the dirty end of filmmaking. Just wasn't interested. Yeah. And I was driving home from Adelaide with some friends, and we'd just been at the Adelaide, the the Australian Documentary Conference. We'd all went over to Adelaide, and we're just fresh out of film school, and very inspired. That was it was amazing, uh, amazing. Um, conference and we're just telling stories about what happened to us as kids like just random things on this mm. long drive back to melbourne from adelaide and i told the story pretty much as it is in cracker bag and someone said that would make a really great short film mm. and i've never had an idea for a short film like that was that was it this is this is a little story i had mm. and i just i went and wrote it but i wrote it kind of as a documentary like i just wrote it like this is exactly what happened to me and I didn't really embellish it even it was just this is here's the sequence of events from beginning mm. to end and that's kind of you know the only difference that really changed you know between say that initial script which it, I wrote it like in half an hour it was so it was wow. just it just came really quickly yeah um, it, the only thing that changed when we were casting is that I ended up casting uh, this young, like a ten-year-old girl, Edith Cattell, as my character. Like I cast yeah. this girl and said the boy, mm. and for, for various reasons. But it was more of it was more that I think was the thing that changed the film, and I guess made it from being my own story into something else. And again, mm. it's just that embellishing of the truth, like just shifting mm. it a little bit. And I think it made it more universal. I think that's what happened with that film. But the nicest thing that was ever said about that film, someone wrote an article about it and called it. Um, that the film was a documentary after the fact, that it was mm. sort of, you know, years later I'd gone back and recreated this thing, mm. this story to be exactly how it was, to the point where I thought the only people who would like that film would be my mum and my brother <laughs> who created the film because it was so specific. Yeah. It was, it was like, you know, we found the exact car and, of course, it's not the house, but, you know, like all mm. these so many details. Wow. I really thought my mum get it so she i think she thought this is cool that i made something about what happened to me as a kid yeah so it was a real you know but i i, I don't know i guess i what i learned from that is the more you know the more specific you make a story 
the more universal it becomes. So the more mm. the more you dig down and, you know, rather than trying to make it, oh, I don't know if people understand what this is because, you know, it doesn't mean anything to them. So we've got to make it generic so everyone understands. I don't think it's the way to do it. I think you make it very specific to to whatever you're writing about, do it very specifically to that event. Mm. Um, and I, I think about that a lot. Like I think, you know, I'll ask you a question. What, what's one of your favorite films? Um... Probably Arrival by Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So there's a there's a film set in uh, linguistics in the world of linguistics. Mm. Say, mm. I don't know anything about linguistics. I don't know if you're involved in linguistics, but you know, like that. There's a but you get taken into a very specific world, um, and it's interesting because you don't normally get into the, into linguistics or have have that sort of access and you think about all of the great films that you love and generally they're set in a very specific world mm. um that if you pitched it to someone like hey i want to make a film about someone who's a linguistics expert you know yeah it's not very interesting um yeah. but the, the, of course the film's about other things but it's actually set that's the context it's set in mm. and it feels feels like you're gaining knowledge and access into a whole a whole a whole different part of the world that you know nothing about yeah yeah so on cracker bag um i saw that you were credited as sound designer what was your uh what what did you do there was that kind of like a small crew uh sort of thing um you know that that's it's so weird i forgot about that but it's something i've always been interested in like for me you know like i travel with sound monitors (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I um I'm far more interested in sound than I am in image, and I'm pretty obsessed with images. So really, I, yeah, I feel like um, I don't know. Like I've always I've always found my my so my my dad was a musician, my brother's a musician, right? And I think I'm a filmmaker because I'm not a musician. Like I just wow. didn't didn't fall into that. Yeah. So I've always been more interested in sound in a way than I have any other aspect of filmmaking uh, and that says a lot because i'm pretty obsessed with um the the aesthetics of filmmaking yeah that um surprises me so much because i had um i had seen the awesome photography you've got on instagram and the like the one of the most striking things to me about last ride is the cinematography and yeah. um same with many of your shows actually like um uh safe harbor like sam chiplin's incredible so i i had kind of thought like i wasn't sure whether you were the type of filmmaker that really focused heavily on visuals and let someone else kind of add to it with sound so um and i was actually also curious because you started as a graphic designer and i was wondering whether that um when you came to film, whether it was a struggle to bring together the different medium if after your history as a graphic designer? No. Oh, there's a few questions there. Like, first, So first, I'll just continue with sound for a moment. Like yeah. I, even, even with my photography, which I'm pretty serious about, like it's so hard to explain. But when I take photographs, it's like I'm – it's more like they're more like notes to me. They're more like wow. like musical notes. So there's a tone there. Mm. I'm, I'm, you know, and I and I don't I don't know how to explain it because it's not about words. It's just if I, when I'm taking a photograph, there's a 
there's an atmosphere that I'm that I'm drawn to, and it's mm. and it is sonic. Like I can hear it. It's a I don't know if it's like a musician hears a melody, but it's like that. Mm. And when I'm filming, like when I'm on set, definitely in pre-production, I'm always listening to music, and I'm trying to find not so much what the production is going to look like. I want to know what it's going to sound like. Mm. Once I have that in my head. I I know what it's going to look like, and cool. I can I can sort of shape the shape the aesthetic around what I think, you know, and, and it could, it's going to shift. Of course, it's going to change along the way, but for example, with Safe Harbor, I was working with the composer, and actually with a lot of the stuff I've done, mm. I've worked with the composer even that, before pre-production begins. Was that Stephen Ray? Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. So with, with Safe Harbor, with Puberty Blues, with Gallipoli, um, I'm trying to think what else we've done, but, you know, he sends me very long, like, 30-minute jams, just of ideas. Really? Wow. So, sometimes they're joined together. Sometimes they'll be, like, they'll shift and change, but sometimes it's just one whole ambient kind of track. Mm. And I'll listen to it just wandering around the house or working and be like, whoa, that – 22 minutes 30 to 27 minutes 15 that's it like there's something there yeah and we sort of work so by the time i'm shooting and on set i listen to i listen to music all the time like when Mm. i'm wandering around when i'm shooting when on takes i've got music in my ears Mm. i sort of mix it in so i'm hearing dialogue and music together really wow that so so it's yeah, I, I've never really spoken about this much because it's just I find it really hard to talk yeah. about because it is about listening to music while shooting. It it can be dangerous, and I'm very aware of this because ultimately what happens is there's a like mu- like really good music mm. can be a bit like sauce or gravy on food. Like mm. if you've got if it tastes like shit, if you put enough sauce on it, it's going to taste okay. Yeah. So it can sometimes you'll think you've got something great because it's kind of not really great but the piece of music you listen to mm. over the top is sort of smearing goodness over it right so yeah that. so what i what i do is i find one or two maybe three pieces of music and i listen to them on repeat so it's sort of in a way i'm just making sure everything is tonally in the same world mm. as opposed to so it doesn't shift over days or weeks that you're shooting yeah um and yeah i might listen to the one six minute piece of music for six weeks constantly like just but really just almost quietly in the background so it's like background music it's not overpowering it's just almost like you're scoring your life or everything you're seeing at that point you're scoring with this with it also a tone it's rarely melody or anything to you know just just when you focus on the monitor you can see it and you're seeing it in a in a way that is in the same tone that you're looking at something three weeks ago when you were shooting. I don't, I don't know. Mm. It's, it's, it's an extension of my photography, how I think about things visually. It's always deeply sourced in music. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. And so you said you listen to music when you're doing takes sometimes. Yeah. Do you ever, um, say, give your actors music to listen to? Or... Occasionally, yeah. Oh, cool. Occasionally I've done that, yeah. Like... um particularly when I've had earlier work. So on The Cry, which wasn't with Stephen Ray, that was with an mm. amazing composer, uh, Lorne Balfe. Mm. 
um, uh, UK producer who's uh, sorry, UK composer who's um, just like Mission Impossible and oh, huge, right. huge cool. things. Mm. And I was, I got to work with him, and uh, he he gave me a lot of really early a little a lot of early work as well. I wanted to do this in this process that that Stephen and I work in, and um, I gave some of that to you and Leslie and to mm. um, other cast who were interested. Yeah, you was very interested in it. He he loves music as well, and I don't I don't know I don't know if I don't know whether it's a good thing to do or not, but mm. I know that it's um. I just know that it's it can help. At least mm. I know what's in my head because sometimes yeah. you know a piece of music can say more. Phoebe Tonkin was really interested in in it for Safe Harbor as well. She really loves music too, so I think she responds to things that way. Like you know, if you can hear it, hear something, you know, you know tonally how to pitch something. Yeah, cool. Usually. Are that so? You having started in documentary, was it a um, was it difficult to learn how to communicate with actors and work with actors? Like, are there any other tricks that you've uh, used? Yeah, well, I don't know if I, I mean, maybe the documentary thing, I don't know. See, when I when I started, because I didn't go to like, I went to doc, documentary school, like yep. about documentaries all the time. Mm. And I also know that every director does things differently. Yeah. So whether it's how they visually approach things, how they talk to actors how they how they do it. like it's just different no mm. director i hope i hope no director does it the same way you've got yeah. to have your own way of doing it mm. but i guess in in dealing with real people or having an interest in how to portray real people or work with real people on screen mm. i i find that you know if you treat a if you treat an actor just like a a person mm. that's that's the first step like they're not this you know, even really, really amazing actors, mm. they're just people, you know, they're just, and mm. they've got, you know, kind of the same concerns that you and I have, like mm. they're just interested in the same things and same concerns. What I have found though, is that every actor, I think uh, you've got to learn the language. You, like you have to, you can't really expect them to understand your language. You've got to work out how to speak to them in their yeah. language. And what I mean by that is, so for example, on, Last Ride, or mm. even on Penguin Bloom, which is kind of really similar in a way. We've got quite really experienced actors mm. working alongside really like with kids that have mm. no acting experience. So on Last Ride, you've got Hugo Weaving, who's an incredible actor, with Tom Russell, who's a 10-year-old kid who, you know, it's the first, th first thing he's ever done. Yeah. And my job really is to try and, you know, to shoot scenes and to make a film that makes it feel like those two really different actors from very different backgrounds that when they're in the scene together feel like they're in the same movie as each other, like they're mm. in the same world. They're, yeah. they're characters. And if you went in there and, you know, so with Hugo, who I've worked with a couple of times now, he's, like, he's incredibly academic and mm. emotional and studious. He he loves to talk about process, subtext. He wants to know why they're, you know, he's interested in the gaps between the words. Like he wants to know everything about, you know, he'll drill down into it. Mm. Whereas with Tom, he just, he wanted to know when, what time lunch was. You know, <laughs> when could he play with Lego again? Like it's they're really different motivations. Yeah. So I went up to Tom and started talking to him about the subtext of the scene. Tom would be like, can I have a biscuit? And if I... <laughs> If I said to Hugo, 
um, dude, we just got to do this scene, and then and then we then you can have then you can have lunch. Like he'd be like, I'm not here for lunch. I'm here to act. So, <laughs> so that's a really weird example. But you know what I mean? Like you've got to find, I had to find a way of speaking to Tom mm. in with a, with a language that we understood, which is really quite different to the language that Hugo and I were speaking, mm. words and, and phrases and stuff. So when they're in the same scene together, you watch it and you go, they're in the same scene together. Right. And, I've, and I found that technique works that's what I've done ever since then. That's, I guess that's how I've nutted it out. And that's with ensembles. So like with Puberty Blues, we've probably got like, I don't know how many main actors, maybe 20 main actors, mm. main cast, probably more. You've got, I had a different, I guess a different way of speaking to everyone. Yeah. And, and it's, it's still you. Like it's, it's not you're changing yourself, those people. It's just like I know with this actor, if I speak to them in, in a certain way about a certain thing, I'll get this performance. But if I say that to the person next to them, mm. I won't get it. You've got to work it out, which is, so it's, I guess what I'm saying is that every act is totally different and I, yeah. you know, you've got to work it out each, each time. And some, and sometimes it's really easy and other times you'll struggle. Like some actors you just never click with. Yeah. And it feels like the words that are coming out, you sort of are clumsy and other, mm. others are just like, you say one or two words and you watch their performance and like, I know, I know how to talk to this person now. Yeah. But hopefully everyone, you know, that's, that's just chemistry. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Can't get everyone. Yeah. And, and do you find that a bit more difficult on the TV you've worked on where maybe uh, the timeframes are a bit shorter and you don't have as much time with cast? Um, no, no. I, you know, I've never felt much difference between the film work I've done as a director. Mm my role doesn't change. I've just right. seen that my role is the same. It's mm. to create a world. Mm. It's to get really good performances, to make something that is atmospherically intact. Um, and, of course, with film, you have more time and TV is often extremely rushed. Mm. I like both. Mm. There's something about the immediacy and the urgency of TV and that you're working incredibly quickly. I kind mm. of can embrace that and yeah. and and be reactive like mm. you can't go like i go in pre-prepared but i can i like changing on the moment and embracing something that's actually happening and doing it whereas on a film it's still pretty quick i think i don't know it doesn't matter how much time you've got whether it be you're shooting 12 minutes a day or four minutes a day you're mm. still i'm still running out of time at the end of the day like yeah. I, you, you i use every second yeah. i've got yeah whether i've got lots of time or no time so yeah, yeah. And you're actually the first um, TV director I've interviewed, I think. Um, most people I've interviewed do features. Um, and how how much time do you get in post-production and, like, the mix uh, doing the sound uh, there? The thing I would like to change... So, you know, I've done... Having done a lot of television... Yeah. And I've done two feature films now... The thing I would like to change in television production mm. is the post-production. Mm. It's you always want more time, but as I just said, like however much time you have, you don't seem to have enough time, so you kind of deal with that. Mm. But say on Safe Harbor, mm. we cut this four hours, and we cut an, an hour was roughly cut in like I'll say seven to eight days. Mm. Per episode. That's wow. how much you get to cut it. 
So when you walk in, there's an assembly roughly done. It might go for an hour and a half or whatever, but like, yeah. you know, your job then for the next seven days is to go hard and to try and craft something out, you know, yeah. in that. And usually by the eighth or ninth day, it's signed off. Like you're mm. finished and you're on to F2 and then, you know, F3, F4. Yeah. I know the tele- television, particularly on the sort of shows I've been working on and the, that I'm interested in doing, would benefit if even if you had twice as long, like if you had four, two yeah. weeks per episode or longer mm. because by the time you're in the edit you know of course you're, you're hiring an edit, edit suite and and machinery and editors but i know it's not as expensive as the shoot was yeah it's actually yeah. probably the cheapest part yeah of show and sound as well uh like i know we just had months on penguin bloom and it didn't seem like long enough really in TV, you get i don't know i mean i don't know you might you probably mix an episode in two and a half days for mm. an hour, which is it's just insane. Mm. Um, and they might have a week to sort of, you know, to to spot it and sound effects and dub and stuff like that. Mm. But again, I'm talking about sound a lot. I know, like, like for example, you can you can get away with a shitty visual. Not that I ever I'm trying to do that, but yeah. if it sounds right, people mm. will be forgiving. And you can do so much more emotionally with with sound. Uh, and th- then you can with images a lot of the time. Yeah. I think if we spent more time in the back end, mm. in editing and post, everything, which to me is, does seem like the cheaper end of production, um, the the quality and the craft of what you're delivering would, would go up incrementally or mm. exponentially, whatever mm. it is, yeah. Mm. So I'm very interested in that and I'm, I'm, I'm getting involved in, producing my own work now and that oh, is something really? I cool. want to design from the ground up is yeah. trying ways that we can have more time where it's needed and where mm. it's actually elevate the show yeah, yeah. You, you think um producers and tv don't really understand the value of taking time with that no i think they do i just think i just think that that tv production and this is everywhere mm. it's sort of Generally, okay. So it's a few things. Generally, generally, it's sort of based around an algorithm. You're going mm. to do an hour of TV. You got this much money. You're going to have this much time to shoot it, and you got this much crew. Like it's, 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 and it's, and it's. I think it's done like that because generally, television doesn't have a director attached until much further down the line. Mm. Um, or, say, with episodic television where you might have, say, even if, you know, 12 episodes in a season, you may have three or four directors. Mm. And no one really knows what those directors want or need yet. Mm. And a lot of the time, the scripts haven't been written for that back end yet. They might have the first two. And then they don't really know if there might be one episode that could be on a battlefield or there could be, you know, there could be the fire episode where yeah. everything's on fire. And they've, they've got to kind of have, I don't know, they've got to have all the things there just in case that's needed. Mm. Whereas the work I've been doing, I'm, I'm, you know, on Safe Harbor, I was the director. On The Cry, I was the director. And I, I you know, early on in the production, I haven't been able to do this because this is just, it's very hard. Once the machine is going, it's very hard to shift it. I'd like to be able to go in and say, look, I only need, I need a full crew for four weeks. Mm. It'd give me 10 people for five weeks. And, mm. and we'll break it up and we'll be like, I'm just I'm making stuff up. But mm. there's a way of designing a, 
production around the story. Yeah. And I say that in like, so if I went to, if, you know, if I took you to the set of Puberty Blues, not, not even the set, sorry, the mm. set's really the thing. If I took you to the unit base of a show, mm. there's usually the same amount of tables, the same amount of trucks, the same tents, all that sort of stuff, same, 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 mm. for that show as there would be for, I don't know, any other show that's shooting at that same time or recently. Mm. But the stories are really different. Yeah. And I've always found it weird that, so regardless if you're doing a show about, I don't know, it could be a very, like, so like normal people. I don't know how that was made, but so mm. I don't know if you've seen that series, but it's like. No, I haven't. So beautiful, one of the yeah. best things I've seen ever. So you've got that story, and I don't know, maybe they had tons of people in all the trucks, but it didn't feel like that. And, yeah. and if it was, it didn't need all those people. Mm. Does the, do they need the same people, the same amount of trucks and the same amount of people that are doing, uh, I don't know, like a like a hospital drama or something yeah. like that? It's, it's got like a huge ensemble cast. But generally, they'll be the same. In Australia, mm. it's the same. Mm. And I, I just, I don't get it. And I've yeah. been on a lot of sets now, and I often... The way I run, like to run things, and the way that I run a set, say, mm. I more often walk out, and there's, and I love all the crew, but there'll be like 20 people on their phones for half the day because yep. they're not needed. Yeah, um, they might be needed for a bit of the show. Anyway, so it's not a criticism on how things are made, other than I just think there's a better way, and I'm really interested in, in exploring that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, that's what I loved about uh, Last Ride is that it felt like. Um, it felt like you were just following around and following these actors around the outback, and <laughs> it, it felt like a it felt like a documentary. Do you know what I yeah. mean? It yeah. um it didn't have that really staged feeling. It felt natural, and it reminded me of shoots I've been on with friends where, um, you just go out and you find an interesting location, and you have good actors and a good story and you sleep like shit and you eat shitty food and you you just focus on what you're shooting. Yeah. yeah. Well, everything I've made, mm. as much as I can, like I'm always stealing actors after, you know, like just for 15 or 20 minutes after, <laughs> after rap or, yeah. you know, or I'll go and, you know, so it's just me and the cinematographer maybe a sound person and an assistant. Like there's three or four of us and we just go shoot stuff. Mm. And as much as I love the stuff that we do with all the crew and, you know, the, the big stuff, yeah. it's those smaller reduced crews that are really nimble mm. um, that allow you to, they just allow you to shoot differently. And I always look around and I've got everything I need to make a film and there's like four people there. Yeah. And I, need, I do need everyone else and I need, a, you know, you need all the production people helping you to get to this point. Yeah. But I feel like that's where the real juice is. Like that's where I get most excited. Like, and I've done things where there's hundreds of people running around, and I'm like, but I'm I'm looking for like, how can I get three people to make yeah. a film? Yeah. Wow, that's a, I love that. I love that. Um, and uh, I'll let you go soon. But um, I'm just curious about how Penguin Bloom went because you just got off the edit. Uh, for that. So how was the post-production process for that? Um, it was really good. I, mm. I worked with an amazing editor called Maria Papoutsis. Mm. And this was kind of her, 
I won't say it was her first film, but it kind of was. Like she, mm. the only other film she, her first film cut, she cut was a uh, film Ride Like a Girl. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. That she had a lot of, I mean, she cut the film, but it was because of the situation. Jill Bilcock was there as well. Mm. And, but Maria heard about the story. I never, I didn't know her. And I was finding it hard to find an editor. Mm. And Maria wrote to me, like she knew about it. And she just wrote this really beautiful uh, email about why she would like to do the film or to be at least to have a chat about it. Mm. So it was a bit of a, I don't know, it was a bit of a risk in a way because she didn't have a huge amount of experience. But I felt like she was the right person, mm-hmm. um, which I, is a huge thing for me with, with crews and everything. Like you mentioned Sam Chiplin before, like when he shot Safe Harbour, he hadn't shot anything before that. Mm. He he hadn't even shot a short film. But I knew Sam. Uh, I'd known him on and off for a couple of years. Uh, and I just knew he really wanted to be a cinematographer and I knew he could do it. Felt like the right person for it. So Maria was great. And we actually cut, we didn't cut like in a post house. We cut um, in this room that was sort of built above a cafe in Brunswick. Yeah. And I loved not being in a post facility. <laughs> It, it was good. Like we had to go sometimes and definitely yeah. once we got into doing sound and everything, we were definitely yeah. attached to sound firm. But it was just nice being, I don't know, being away from uh, a place where there was like 10 other people cutting films and, mm. and it just felt like our own little space and it was a big room and it didn't feel like a post house. Mm. And you walked out on the street and there was just like normal life going on. It wasn't wasn't like, you know, in, in, uh, in where all the filmmakers were hanging out. Mm. Um so it was really enjoyable. Like I found it hard to leave that room when we, we were sort of forced out of it because of because of lockdown. But um, yeah. it was a really beautiful, beautiful room. It's a place called Bird. It's above right. a cafe, um, which is appropriate for Penguin. Yeah, room. yeah. Uh, but yeah, they've turned it into like a, I don't know, like an outlier style editing place. That's like awesome. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And how was the mix at Sound Farm? Really good. Mm. Yeah, I worked with um, Chris Goods. Mm. And he did an amazing job. One of the uh, one of the one of the huge jobs for him was, you know, one of our main characters is a is a penguin. Uh, mm. Sorry, a penguin. <laughs> <a> mag- <laughs> I call him penguin. I uh, was a penguin, and uh, you know, we like all characters. Like so, like char- he, he, you know, it's not like penguin talks in the film. Mm. He's, he's she speaks in her, her own language, like yeah. a, like her language. Yeah. Um. But Chris Goods had to create that language. Right, cool, um, yeah. Scratch, yeah. And I I had two things that really influenced me on that. I was um, in, in talking to him about it. it was, firstly, it was, I'm a huge fan of Storm Boy. Like, it's sort of my spirit right. film. Yeah. And, uh, and um, through making Penguin, I ended up having lunch with one of the producers of, of, um, of Storm Boy. Right. And he told me this story about... Have you seen Storm Boy? No, I haven't actually. Okay. Mm. So the birds in Storm Boy, when I think of Storm Boy, I think of the pelicans speaking, the original, mm. the original Storm Boy, I'm talking about 1977. Mm. And they had this sort of sound, they go, bah, bah, bah. it was beautiful, very calming sound. Mm. And the producer told me this story about how they made the film and they didn't speak, they were just like birds because birds don't really make yeah. noise. <laughs> and the cut was pretty much as it was and... They showed someone, they said, this is really great, but the birds should speak. Mm. 
And they're like, no, 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 they don't speak. No, no, they're just birds. They're just normal birds. Yeah. And he said, no, no, we just need to know. We need to hear the, their sound. Yeah. And and so he went and synthesized. He used synthesis in wow, 1970. Cool. So all the birds in somewhere, just go watch the trailer. It's, I think yeah. they're in there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a synth- synthesized sound. And they can't, you know, it's the emotional intonation. Birds. Yeah. You mm. know roughly what they're thinking. And yeah. we, we haven't anthropomorphized our magpie in the film at all, really. Mm. But occasionally, you know, we, we've got it making sounds just so we have a sense of danger or mm. sadness or like just th- those sorts of key things. Yeah. Magpies in particular are like a lot of birds, as opposed to other animals, they don't have expressive faces. Like mm. a bird, they have like this very straight mask. Like yeah. you don't know if a magpie is happy or sad, essentially, yeah. unless yeah. they're swooping. <laughs> so we had to, and I likened it to R2-D2 in Star Wars. Yeah, so yeah. We never know, you don't know if R2-D2 is happy or sad, other yeah. than the sound he's making, and generally you know exactly how he's feeling. So mm. we, we kind of used, you know, like if you can make a, a mechanical box like R2-D2 emote, then mm. you can do that for a magpie easily. So cool. it was sort of those those two things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what were some of those techniques? That, that you... um, well, the other, from a sound point of view, it's very hard to get good quality uh, audio recordings of birds full stop, but yep. particularly magpies because you can't, they don't, you, you can't keep them in captivity, you can't breed them, then you can't have them as pets. Mm. So it's not like you can call the magpie keeper and bring them into the studio, <laughs> into a sound booth and yeah. get them to talk for half an hour. Yeah. So obviously we had hours and hours of footage mm. that we used um, where we had random calls and, you know, so Chris and the team just went through and um, pulled out every yep. every vocalisation that we had, right or wrong. Yep. And then I think he probably found some pre-recorded stuff like just right. um, files mm. and i think he actually found someone who had a big library of bird noises and we got some through them mm. but generally when you see the film 98 percent is all real bird and there, i think there's one other bird we sampled that i don't even know what the, I, I don't know what it is but it just had a different inflection or intonation mm. that um we needed occasionally mm. um and um and was, yeah, there was three birds. So there was there was like little baby birds and um, teenager birds and and adult birds. So we had to sort of create that by pitching up and down. So we had like a you know like the the baby bird was very high pitched like a baby, yeah. and teenage bird was in the middle. And as Penguin gets older in the film, they pitched it slow, slightly down just yeah. to help. You know, actually we're probably pitching up because we had much more of the um, adult birds than baby birds to work with. Yeah, mm. I love talking to directors about. Um how they personify objects and animals with sound like and yeah. it's something that actually comes up a surprising amount like George Miller talked a lot about how he uh gave personality to the sounds of the vehicles in Fury Road and yeah. I don't know if you've seen um Relic no I haven't yeah. seen that yet oh, no, no. it's really good but yeah. um Natalie yeah. I interviewed Natalie Erica James recently and she um it was talking about how they gave the house personality. Um, yeah, it's a cool topic. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like the sound, well, what's, you know, it's in, like you spend way more time mixing a film than you do grading it. I think that yeah. says a lot. Like you'll spend months 
mixing a film and you get like two and a half, three weeks, whatever, you know, like a, mm. a fraction of that time. And when you see the amount of work that goes into mixing a film, you know, you know it's because it has the most control of the audience, mm. always. Mm. And I'm, 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 I'm constantly enamored by sound and how it has an effect on us. Mm. Um, and I, I even I, I was, uh, years ago when our kids were little, um, you know, they'd, they'd be watching a film, whether mm. like it, like, and I'm talking like a, a Disney film or maybe something slightly more something or adult, adult, but not like something that was trying to think of a film, but like, you know, it's, it's a kid, big kids film, but say for a three-year-old or a four-year-old, it might be a bit worrying. Might yeah. be a scary thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could always tell if I heard a certain tone of music, like atmospheric music, yeah. I'd turn and my daughter would be out of a seat and be watching the film still from behind <laughs> something. And it wasn't necessarily what was happening yeah. that, on screen. It was the music. Yeah. And it had a very deep effect on them. Like, yep. you know, like... I say, are you okay? And and be like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. But it was the music was actually getting them out of their seat. Yeah. So I'm fascinated. I I tell you one. I'll just relay a story that is yeah, cemental of it because I've always been interested in in music. I I, oh, I could talk about this all day. But, <laughs> and also, I've been in lockdown. Great. So I'm not talking to many people in quarantine. <laughs> um. Uh, um. Oh man, I've gone blank. Who is the, oh, Walter Murch. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did this. I was in um, at the Berlin Film Festival years ago. Oh, right. And I went to a master class that Walter Murch was holding. Oh, wow. And I was just like, That's I cannot cool. believe I'm here. Yeah. yeah. And the first thing he did is that he, he said, I just want to play you a sound. Mm. And he put, he just, you know, had some speakers there and he put this sound on it. It was kind of like this rumbling sound. Yeah. And he said, you know, does anyone know what this sound is? And a few people you know, put their hand up and got it wrong. I can't remember mm. if someone got it right or not, but it, but it, it was the sound of, of it was in, in utero of a womb. It was essentially oh, what a baby right. hears. Yeah. So it was that, you know, that sound. Yeah. Yeah. The blood pumping and the heart beating and stuff yeah. like that. And he said, I just want to play this because, you know, for all of us, this is the first sound we heard. This is it. Wow. Yeah. And he then went on to explain that, I'll try and get this right, but he said, your, so your senses as far as sight and sound and touch and taste and all that sort of thing, of mm. all of them, set your sound, you could hear something mm. before sight. Mm. So you're hearing your mother's womb mm. before, and he said the bones in your eardrums are working so they, they're registering sound before the brain develops wow. to know what it is. Yeah. So he describes sound as being pre-conscious, mm. pre-consciousness. Yeah. So the bones are chipping away, like, the, you know, in, in your eardrums, they're mm. working. You're hearing, the, the, your, the sense of, of hearing is happening before your brain knows what hearing is, yep. before it knows what sound is. Mm. So by the time your brain catches up and it's growing as a, as a, as a, a baby, yep. Yep. sound is all around you. You're, you're aware of it. Mm. And he says, and I guess this is the thing I find it very hard to explain why why I'm drawn to sound. He said, like he just said, it's no one. You can't tell someone why you like music and yeah. like why why you like a certain genre of music and they don't. It's mm. it's really hard to use words to do that. Yeah, it's primal. 
Yeah, whereas you can look at a picture and say, I don't, you know, I, I, I like it, but I think the, the, it could, the red could be a little bit darker or something mm. like that. Um, whereas music's a lot more, much more subjective. Yeah, and maybe that's um, why there's not many words use available to describe the quality of sounds yeah. like it's a lot easier to describe the physical appearance of something than it is the how, what it sounds like you're always using comparatives yeah mm. yeah well, so, i don't know i heard that quote that i saying um i think brian eno said uh talking about music's like dancing about architecture <laughs> <laughs> so it's there's no point yeah but, um, uh, or, or it gets lost in the translation. Yeah. But I do, I notice that with, like when I'm making things, like generally, generally when you, you know, say with cinematography, mm. rarely does a producer come up to me and say, I don't like the way you're shooting this or the colours aren't right or yeah. the frame's not right or do you need a different lens or what's this composition? They leave it totally up to you because I think they, even though they've got an interest in it and mm. a lot of producers I know are very visual, they just see that as, it's your job and it's a technical exercise and we're leaving it up to you to work that out. Mm. They'll only ever say in the grade whether they think it's too dark. And that's, that's the note. Like, can you, you know, it's too dark in your light. It, which, you know, that's an easy thing to, to, for a producer to notice. Yeah. But as soon as it comes to music, everyone has an opinion. Yeah. And I, and I liken it to that, like, even though we've all got cameras. Yeah. Not everyone can go and take a photo. So they leave that up to the filmmakers to work visually. Yeah. But everyone knows what radio station they like to tune their car to. Yeah. And everyone knows that they hate heavy metal or they hate rap music. So mm. everyone does have an opinion on music and sound in general. They, 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 they know what they like to listen to. Whereas pictures, no one really seems to have an opinion on that unless you're deeply involved in the creation of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I just, I just remembered one final question I have for you yeah. before I let you go. You have succeeded massively in the Australian industry and many people who get to your point often go on to like America. Do you think um, you're going to go work overseas at some point? Um, look, I, I mean, I have, you know, I made The Cry as a UK production. I yeah. lived in the UK for eight months while we were making that. Oh. Um, I... I, you know, I'm, I'm always interested, you know, mm. and I've, I've looked at doing a lot of things in the US. I've said no to a lot of things. Mm. Um, I mean, I couldn't, I, I mean, the, 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 everyone feels like you should go to the US, but I just don't know if that's where it's at. It's definitely not where it's at at the moment right mm. now. Yeah. I, I, I think all of my, like the things I'm drawn to, mm. the, the things I'm inspired by have always been more European. Yeah. So I would be more likely, I think, to go to Europe to make something, whether it be like with American money, I don't know. But I've, but, and I guess the other thing is I, I like living in Australia. Like I just yeah. like it. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time in the States and other places and I, we've got a pretty good life here. Uh, and I've got a family here and, mm. and probably when my, you know, when certain things were happening in my career, say even with Cracker Bag, like we had, I had my son at the same time as that happened. So I, where I think a lot of people might have been like, like wow, I'm going to go to the States and, you know, move there and get a film or something. I was like, shit, I'm a dad now and yeah. got to work how to be a family as well as try and earn a living. You know, there's just been other things 
along the way. But um, I don't feel like it's, I don't know, I, I, I'm pretty content with the work that I, I have done. Mm. Uh, I know it can always be better. And I feel like every project I've done is incrementally better than the last. Yep. And the work I'm looking at doing next is bigger still and hopefully that just continues. Like I, I'm I'm more often than not, I'm I'm drawn to work with people I like and mm. and want to work with and, and and that are nice and we do good work together. Like it's it it hasn't sort of been a I actually I, and I don't know if you can have a career plan in the film industry. Things yeah. happen too randomly and generally the things that involve you moving from, you know, the next project to, you know, stepping up on the ladder or whatever it is, mm. they're generally things that are totally out of your control. Like you can make the most beautiful film in the world and no one will see it. Like it's, uh, there's a whole lot of other things involved in that. And um, mm. I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm more interested in working in and around people that I, that I, you know, here than I have been chasing maybes overseas. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I love that. Keep the Australian industry strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Glendon, thank you. So, Actually, wait. No, I do have one more question. Can I ask yeah. one more question? What are I'm those sure. things that you're working on next? I, I guess for me, like I'm, I'm going to do, I'm doing a series, like a TV yep. series. For me, and one of the reasons I've been drawn to television, really, mm. is that I think that's where good storytelling is at the moment. Mm. And it's it's what we're, you know, generally what people are watching is, is, is a uh, long form, uh, you know, episode, episodic drama, whether it be like four episodes or eight or continuing mm. series, that sort of thing. Um, I felt I, 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 years ago I watched, I was watching, uh, I was really into Madman mm. and I was so in love with it and felt I was watching something that was truly cinematic mm. And yet it went for 68 hours or whatever it was. And I felt like I just watched a 68-hour film. And I, mm. and I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to do this sort of longitudinal story where you're telling you with characters for four hours or six hours or whatever I can do. Mm. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I think there's certain things that should be films now. And mm. I think Penguin Bloom wants to be a film. Mm. Um, but generally, the, the material I'm into like, should be television. That's, yeah. that's what it should be. Excuse me. That's what it should be, because mainly because that's where the audience is. Yeah. I think a lot of things like, say, The Cry mm. or Safe Harbor. If you made a film that was called Safe Harbor and you put it out there, like no one would watch it. Like <laughs> in our industry, like it just wouldn't happen. But yeah. as a series, it's had a life all around the world. You know, yeah. it won an international Emmy. It's had this. It just feels like television is a way of. It has it has a built-in audience, and I totally love that. You know, it it it. You, you get way more people seeing your work. And that's, as a filmmaker, that's what I want. I want people to see it. Awesome. Glendon, I think you've, this has been one of the most interesting interviews I've done. You've been great. Oh, cool. Thanks so cool. much, man. Pleasure. Thank you so much again to Glendon for agreeing to be interviewed. Um, keep an eye out for Penguin Bloom. I forgot to ask him, you know, when and where that will be playing next. I should have, so that I could promote it. But keep an eye out, because I'm sure it's going to be amazing. As always, thanks to Jean-David Legoulon for the music and sound design. Have a good one, guys. <laughs>